of an elite circle of strategic analysts and game theory economists who pondered the impenetrable, planned for the horrific, dreamed up the nightmare scenarios, and plotted how nuclear weapons could kill millions, all in the hope that this very threat would prevent it from ever happening. The other cardinals of Cold War deterrence have passed. Bernard Brody, Herman Kahn, Klaus Knorr, Albert Wohlstetter, Schelling is the last of them. He already was eighty years old when terrorists converted a quartet of passenger airliners into cruise missiles for the September 11, 2001 attacks on New York City and Washington. In the aftermath of America's second Pearl Harbor, Schelling began pondering whether an updated system of coercion and inducement might be found to influence the behavior of a new generation of adversaries. Deterrent strategies had kept a tense nuclear peace with the communist leadership of the Kremlin for more than four grim decades of the Cold War. Might they not offer guidance for how America could protect itself and its allies during this long war against violent religious extremists? As the tenth anniversary of the 9-11 attacks approached, and as Schelling prepared to enter his tenth decade of life, he also began another major effort, a complete gutting and remodeling of his kitchen. He juggled discussions of deterrence and the installation of drywall one afternoon in his home in Bethesda, Maryland, just beyond the northwest boundary of Washington, D.C. He scurried about the construction site with puckish good humor, a sparkle in his eye, and a lilt in his speech, looking like Einstein by way of Yoda. How does a Nobel laureate in economics rationalize a six-figure kitchen upgrade at age 90? How does someone at that point in life amortize the experience of the remaining meals to be prepared and savored with a whopping contractor's bill? Was this healthy optimism or simple delusion? Perhaps that is the essence of Schelling's deterrence analysis of his conflict prevention strategies on a most individual and human scale. For the professor whose essays helped inspire Stanley Kubrick to make his cinema classic, Dr. Strangelove, it is obvious there are no guarantees. When every day is a potential doomsday, don't you have to try everything you possibly can to make life better? The central problem in attempting to apply Cold War deterrence theories to the age of violent religious extremism is that terrorists hold no territory, and thus hold no territory dear. They offer no large and obvious high-value targets for American attack, comparable to the national treasures the Soviets knew were at risk. Populous cities, critical factories, dachas of the elite, military bases, or silos protecting the Kremlin's own nuclear force. Then there is the question of attribution. A nuclear warhead hurled toward American soil by intercontinental ballistic missile has a return address. The attacking nation and its leaders can be identified and held responsible and with certainty. Not so with a weapon of mass destruction smuggled into America and set off by a shadowy, stateless terrorist organization. Finally, there are the millennial, aspirational, otherworldly goals of the jihadists. 
The Politburo pursued its clear self-interest, which required the survival of the Kremlin leadership. What can you threaten that will deter a suicide terrorist, so obviously willing to give up his life in pursuit of holy war against the United States? This new threat may be wholly irrational, with no identifiable self-interest to which appeals can be made. Negotiations may be impossible. Deterrence, questionable. The future then holds little but a long war, until one side is beaten into submission or eliminated. The only course is a fight to the death, or at least to exhaustion. In fact, the 2002 National Security Strategy, signed by President George W. Bush one year after the September 11 attacks, stated that traditional concepts of deterrence will not work against a terrorist enemy whose avowed tactics are